Welcome to the Get the Knack Podcast. I am your host, Jerry Knack, coming to you from the Get the Knack Podcast studio here in Ocean Shores, Washington. And I am joined by my very special guest, making his third appearance on the show. Wow. He is a journalist, an educator, and an acclaimed author. He's out of Los Angeles. Please welcome back to the program, Mark London Williams. Mark, welcome back. Well, that's three times. I'm becoming like a... Paul Simon or Steve Martin on the old Saturday Night Live or something with these repeat appearances. You know, and and it, <laughs> it does seem to be like a thing, right? It, that you get to make multiple appearances on the show. It's it's right, not everybody right. gets to to come back more than more than once. I don't know why that is. Mm -hmm. Just laziness on my part, I guess. So how you been? <laughs> I mean, as we were talking before we, before we went to well live, if people are listening right now on Friday, but before we went on air. Um, on on digit um i'm doing pretty well for being alive as are the rest of us unless we have a really interesting audience i don't know about for being alive in such a peculiar and unknowable moment in history right that's ultimately uh terrifying and completely opaque as far as where it's headed and yet i'm, I'm grateful that personally things are reasonably okay given given those circumstances in my my own part of uh you know the bubble the sphere right yeah i can i can say the same thing here on a on a friday night in the pacific northwest mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. not raining at the moment it was a little while ago uh temperatures have been in the mid 50s so i guess this is what qualifies for spring around these parts um but um but yeah i think um you know i think i think we're doing all right um unfortunately you uh had a uh, had an experience recently uh, on the personal level that you had to go through that I'm uh, somewhat uh, familiar with, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, the family homestead in, in Berkeley, uh, you had to, uh, to get ready to, to part ways with that, uh, put that on the, uh, yeah. on the old market. Uh, I did that with um, my parents' home in Rochester, New York several years ago. So I mm -hmm. know, I know that experience all too well. I've been, uh, you know, we've texted a little bit about it, but I uh, haven't had a substantive conversation. I can only imagine what you've been going through because I don't know, you know, I know your sister, uh, you know, tangentially, but um, beyond that, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine what you and your, your family have been going through uh, on this level. Well, I mean, it's very dislocating and certainly I'm not, obviously it's, it's a, you know, it's a generational thing people will often go through is selling the parental house unless somehow they're, they're managing to stay there or, or move back in it and finish their own lives there, which it was a great place in a great neighborhood. It would not be a bad spot. It's in the Bay Area for those of people or even for those who don't know it in the East Bay, in the, in the Berkeley Hills, it had this sensational view of the Bay that I was lucky enough to grow up with. And so Aside from how that shaped me growing up in the Bay Area in Berkeley, pre-tech Bay Area, pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook Bay Area, um, and it was the 60s and 70s, right? So I'm kind of what makes me almost a time traveler coming from that place in that time compared to the, the sort of the growing up experiences that most Americans had who are, who are my age, our age. But a but seminal time in the country. That's right, but and in that spot, I was in that spot where I was one of the, the loci of where it was, where it was indeed seminal. I mean, there are other places, of course, L.A., uh, Ann Arbor, uh, New York. I mean, you know where where the '60s, the capital, capital six, capital zero, where we think of the '60s is unfolding. And Berkeley was certainly one of those those ground zeros. Yeah, one of and the I was epicenters. There as a kid. Yeah, that's right. You know. 
you had uh, you had the free speech movement. You had the Black Panthers. Right. Uh, you had a lot of other things going on uh, in uh, the San Francisco Bay That's Area. Right. You had the hippies, um, right? Which you know my some of my favorite uh, you know my literary heroes spawned the hippies, the beatniks, of course, the beat generation. Um, and uh, it's kind of funny. I I often think that I was born in the wrong time. But, mm-hmm. but other times I think I was born in the exact right time. So kind of, right. you know, being a, being a seventies and eighties kid, I, right. I couldn't imagine growing up in another time, but we'll talk about this uh, a little bit later about, about how uh, some folks, our age are shrinking away from technology as opposed to embracing mm, more, right. but, but we'll get there right. uh, later on in the show. Um, Mark, what, it, you know, we've known each other for a while now and, Kind of, if I've asked you this question, if you've explained this to me and I've forgotten it, please forgive me. But I don't think I've ever asked you the genesis of your name, Mark well, London well, Williams. The, well, the London is my mom's maiden name. If, if it was in England or maybe Spain, it'd be like a hyphenated name, right? I, I mean, I really have the two surnames. My mom was Deborah London. My dad was actually William Williams, but he went by Dick William Richard Williams. Um, and he went by Dick. His father was William Donald Williams, went by Don. And my dad said, this, this ends with me, this double naming William Williams thing. We're not doing, <laughs> well, I'm not doing that to my son. And he always knew somebody didn't know him like a salesman. They'd ask for Bill Williams, you know, that was his clue for, uh, for knowing that, uh, you know, the person calling didn't have a clue who they were supposed to be calling. So um, it's a lot like so, my friend Sal, who I had no. on a few weeks ago, the Spanish mm-hmm. thing, right? Which is let's honor both parents with the name. His, you know, I've always known him as Sal Flores, right. but his full name is right. Sal Flores Hernandez, right? Which honors both uh, mom and dad, which I find fascinating. That you know maybe that's not done as much, right? Or isn't really done anymore. Yeah, and also because of, I mean, the other things are changing. Is it? Wives don't feel as obliged to take husband's name or partners, or even if it's, and then of course with with same sex partners raising kids, then that's even a different calculus as far as surnames. Fair, um, right? So, so a lot of that. So, but this was a way in 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 those in the circumstances in in which my parents got married, and in how gender roles were assigned then in the fifties. This was the, the way to honor. Both both sets of parents, and I was the firstborn, the eldest, so I got I got both surnames as a as a full name, which I, I'm I'm grateful for because there's there's quite a few Mark Williamses around, um, enough that it was like an online club of Mark Williamses, most of whom seem to hail from England and South Africa, actually. Gotcha. But um, but I'm the only, as far as I know, the only Mark London Williams, and I started to use all three names when I started to get published as a journalist sure. even before I sold my first book. Cause that was, that was the only way that you would know me. I, the, the thought was from the, the, the many, the, the many platoons of my fellow Mark Williams is out there. Yeah. It's a great differentiator. Like, uh, like the comedian, <laughs> Bob Marley, right. He doesn't want to be confused obviously with the, uh, right. the reggae, uh, genius and, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the late Bob Marley, uh, you know, the famous musician, the comedian Bob Marley uh, from Maine, actually. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. He's he's so good in in the Boondock Saints as a as a Boston detective. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but no, it's it is it's a great differentiator. My father did not want to name me John Henry Knack because I would have been saddled with the third. 
and because oh, he was no. junior and he went through holy hell his entire life. Did he, you know, fill out this form and include junior? Did he fill out mm-hmm. that form and not include it? Uh, went through his entire life <clears throat> trying to, you know, prove who the hell he was. Um, so he didn't want me saddled with that. And it's funny, he, he wanted to name me Jerry, but he didn't want Jerry on the birth certificate. So I ended up named Gerald. So anyway, well, what's in a name, right? Yeah, well, or, or by any other name, does it still smell just as sweet? As, as, <laughs> exactly. As and, and as somebody else wrote, you know, it's just the horse of a different color. Um, <laughs> right. So, Mark, uh, one of our, uh, you know, things that brought us together as friends and, uh, you know, uh, compatriots is is the horror genre. And, mm-hmm. you know, you as a, a journalist in, in Hollywood and, and that kind of thing, even if um, even if you're not covering it specifically, I know it's of great interest. And, and coming up this year in... Uh, you know, as, as we return to the movie theater and, and streaming services become more and more prevalent, you know, we've had this whole debate over how long before, you know, what's that, that uh, window of exclusivity, right? It was used to be uh, like um, what, six months back in the day, and then it shrunk to 45 right. days. Some cases it's 17, and now it's day and date, right? The, the, the simultaneous release mm-hmm. in the theater and on streaming services. Um, however, lots of good horror movies. I know there's one out now and I need to see it. Um, you can stream it, you can rent it. It's called X. Um, it's about, uh, about some folks, uh, about to make a, uh, an adult film and, uh, they, uh, they run hmm. afoul of, uh, the locals while they're, they're trying to make their adult film. Uh, I hear good things. It's, it's smacks mm-hmm. of eighties exploitation or even seventies yeah. exploitation, uh, when it comes to horror, but, um, there's some really good ones, uh, on the horizon coming up. Um, the one that has my attention, there's a couple of, uh, Stephen King adaptations coming out this year. Remakes, uh, if you will, Firestarter comes out, uh, May 13th. Right. Uh, and you have Zach Efron starring in that one. Um, Interesting character study also comes out in May, something called Men, and that's coming from uh, Studio uh, A24, which is famous for The Witch mm-hmm. and Hereditary and some others. Um, mm-hmm. Another one that's got my attention is The Black Phone, and that one's starring Ethan Hawke that comes out in June. If I, It's uh, based on a Joe Hill short story, and for those of you who don't know, mm-hmm. Joe Hill would be Stephen King's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan Peele. There's a new film coming out in July called Nope, and that definitely looks right. like uh, some sort of extraterrestrial uh, alien film. Um, and then another Stephen King adaptation uh, remake. This is the one that really, really has my attention that I'm really looking forward to, and that is an actual big screen adaptation of Salem's Lot. It's one of my favorite novels, mm. one of my favorite stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... Halloween ends comes out in October and let's see if it really ends this time. Uh, I still haven't seen Halloween kills. Um, and then supposedly there's going to be another Hellraiser film, uh, sometime this year and another Jeepers creepers film. Another one, uh, it doesn't come out till January that, that has some interest for me here. Here's my thing. And this is why the Halloween franchise is kind of dead to me. Right. What new are you adding to the narrative, right? And this this film, and this might intrigue you as well, it's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And what it is, it's the ship that brings Dracula to London. 
And mm. it's all mm -hmm. about that fated voyage, or mm -hmm. that fateful voyage, right? Um, so that could be really, really interesting. There's supposedly another Scream film. Uh, there's a horror comedy coming out next year called Renfield starring Nicolas Cage as Dracula. Uh, no right. Right. There's going to be another Quiet Place movie. Um, they're going to finally remake The Exorcist. Um, oh, which, no. Which could... <laughs> Considering I think The Exorcist is the scariest movie ever made, it is at the top of the list of my favorite 100 horror films and has been since mm -hmm. I, I launched that countdown. Um, I'm really, really skeptical. But, you know, of those that I mentioned and maybe some that you might be aware of that I'm not, what intrigues you about the upcoming uh, 12 months in the horror genre uh, as far as, uh, you know, big screen releases? Well, I, I mean... The idea of Firestarter, which I remember really loving as a book, and it seemed the book was much more. It's been years and years since I read it, but it was much more. It was almost like a political thriller, as I recall, as as much as a horror book. Like the horror was kind of pegged this political thriller about the agency after the girl, and this is at a time. This is sort of in the era of Three Days of the Condor, right? So this is like Stephen King's Three Days of the Condor mm. sort of contribution about agency abuses, and I don't remember the movie. Having the same that original movie with, with who was it, Drew Barrymore? Or yes, who, sir. Who was in, yeah? Okay, I don't remember the original movie having that same power as the book. And so hopefully, um, especially now when we we're seeing a lot of government excess, you know, coming, uh, you know, all, all, and and agencies uh, turned against their original theoretical mission and things like that. I, I will see if some of that is that original intent of the book is restored to the film. I'll be curious to see what. You know, or if it gets sort of denatured, like when they remade um, Rollerball, they made it even less political than, you know, I mean, the 70 original version based on the short story was um, very political film as much as it was kind of a science fiction film. And then they, they when they remake it, they just take out the politics and just leave the Rollerball, which missed kind of the entire point. Exactly. I really I hate it when they miss the, the point. Right. That it's, mm -hmm. it's a problem I have with a lot of Stephen King adaptations. And it's my major problem with the second it movie, you know, chapter two, it's like, mm -hmm. you, you totally missed the point that this book is about unresolved childhood trauma. And right. You know, I mean, you did okay in chapter one, but then you lost sight of, you know, the, you know, the carrot and the stick, you, you, you lost sight mm -hmm. of the, lost sight of the carrot and, you know, fell in love with the stick for some reason. Um, but, you know, Salem's Lot is an interesting thing because we've never had a big screen adaptation. We've never had an attempt at it. Um, no, and they're doing it. There's not, it's not like part one. They're going no. to do the whole. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, starring uh, William Sadler, who I, I love William Sadler. I think he's a great actor. Mm -hmm. uh, he's mm -hmm. going to be in it. And Alfre Woodard. Um, and I oh. think, yeah. So, you know, there's uh, some some folks with some cachet uh, in mm -hmm. the in this one. And, you know, one of the things that I, I loved about it, the, I love the book, right? It's one of my favorite Stephen King stories. It's his take on Dracula. And, you know, the mini series, um, that came out in, uh, 1979, you know, with David soul, who was writing, mm -hmm. you know, the height of Starsky and Hutch. Right. I always thought he was too old to play Ben Mears. Mm -hmm. The way I read Mears was, was a younger person but there's such a tragic end to this story and then it ties into the dark tower series 
right with the with oh, the right. uh, with the yeah. priest right so it's gonna be really interesting to see where where this goes um but i'm excited for a big screen adaptation the ralphie glick floating outside the window scene is one of the most iconic scenes ever filmed for big or or small screen right the the, mm-hmm. the effects in the original salem's lot were were haunting and uh mm-hmm. you know so it'll be interesting to see how they uh they do that um, and, and bring that to the big screen. And again, you know, with the Halloween films and I'll, I'll, I'll bring up something we were talking about off air in a minute. Um, I, I just think it's time for it to end. It's, it's gotta end, right? Well, that's what they're promising with, uh, the, I mean, that's what they promised. And that's allegedly why Jamie Lee Curtis came back. I actually like the second one generally better. I'm not saying it was great, great. But the reviews had just been so uh, sort of unrelenting that when I did see it with my uh, my eldest son, it actually was better than the reviews. I mean, I don't think it was as good as the first one of this new this this new trilogy, this new final trilogy. But it was it was not bad. And then in the end, and the, the way they end it, you can see the stakes are um, really ratcheting up for what, by all accounts, seems to be the final showdown between uh, Laurie and uh, Mister Myers. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, the original Halloween, that's the film that gave us the blueprint, the prototype for the prevalent horror film of today, which is the slasher, right? Well, I mean, it was actually Black Christmas, which I only recently saw uh, before that, but most of us, but you're right, for most of us, including me growing up at the time, Halloween was well. I mean, Psycho, I suppose, was really the first. In if a way, you the yes. However, there's an 18 year gap from Psycho right. to That's Halloween. Right. It's not like right. It's not like Psycho spawned the the next generation of of you know, no. horror subgenre the way Halloween did. But, but get, there was Black Christmas, and that was but that was from Canada, and nobody really saw it, and there was no streaming in those days. It was Bob Clark who had gone to do Porky's, you know, and that was. Flash, or I don't know if you've seen it yet, but look at that. And given that it came before Halloween, you realize that's kind of where it started in that decade. I mean, that they kind of staked out the turf, and then Carpenter comes along and, and makes it even more. He makes the formula kind of more definitive, uh, you know, with you know more definitive with the teenage sex tropes and things like that. And, I mean, some and, of that because and the mass killer, of course, and the mass killer. That's right. Whereas. Um, Black Christmas is kind of well as more there's more who and not just so much this relentless nexus evil and a mass that's coming after you, but of the potential suspects is kind of a who done it aspect to it as well. But um it's definitely worth a watch if, if one is looking for kind of uh, you know, roots roots and progenitors of uh of genres that we both <laughs> know know and love and occasionally hate <laughs> because of their over <laughs> overuse. Well, yeah, and that's that's where I'm going to go next, Mark. Um, you're listening to the Get the Nag podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Nag, and I'm joined by uh, journalist and author Mark London-Williams on the show tonight. Uh, Mark, um, you know, I don't have the AMC channel anymore on Hulu Live Television, mm-hmm. so had to get AMC Plus so we could watch Better Call Saul, the final season. Yep. Now, the... The, it, it, again, the uh, the law of unintended consequences. I end up with Shudder, which I had before uh, through, yeah. through Amazon Prime, but mm-hmm. now also on there, 
whether it's through AMC Plus or Shudder or whatever, there is a shit ton of horror movie documentaries on there. And I, I love a good documentary. It doesn't matter. I, you know, I kind of prefer true crime here when it comes to my documentaries. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, there's this fantastic documentary called In Search of Darkness. It's all about 1980s horror. It takes you from 1980 to 89. And in between, it slices and dices, forgive the... Uh, Forget mm. the pun there. Um, but, you know, it talks about the final girl. It talks about mm-hmm. different different things that the horror genre either speaks to or, or surfaces. And there's a fascinating discussion in this documentary about the final girl. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of people interviewed for this. Heather Langenkamp of the uh, the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, uh, Caroline Williams who cut her teeth on the the second Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of other women. Um, and that what gets lost in these what appear to be exploitation films uh, is the strong female heroine comes out of the '80s. And, and this right. kind of gets lost, right? It's it's not that they're mousy women that, you know, some guy comes swooping into their rescue, which we still see to this day for some damn reason. Nope. Um, but you see a lot of times it is the, and as they put in a documentary, it is the woman who is the hero. She's the one who vanquishes the monster. She's the one who survives at the end. She's the smartest of the bunch, and I just think that gets lost when you look at um, '80s horror in a kind of canonically. Does that make sense? Well, one of the, I mean, one of the girls. I mean, because a lot of girls are wiped out, of course. Hence the term "final girl." And you, I mean, there are other ways. You know, if, if we're going to contemplate doing our thesis on these films, I mean, is it the girls that are having more sex that get killed, and then sort of the, is it the nerdiest or the brainiest girl, or the, you know. Uh, the most abstinent girl who who often survives in these things. I mean, who is is the final girl? Another of the books and cheerleaders who is like on the victim's tally, you know, of the slasher. I mean, so it depends kind of how we, how we want to slice that cake. Um, but yes, but nonetheless, you do have like you know Laurie Stroud. You have these you do have these iconic heroines who eventually outwit the killer. And especially at a time of uh, reaction in the 80s, right, it was very, it was not, well, as it turns out, I mean, now reactionaries are even more insane now than they were in the 80s. But when you when you think about that, those are the original attempts to um, curb uh, reproductive rights and the, the anti-feminist backlash. And in a way, though, it's interesting, slasher films kind of embrace both the feminine feminism and anti-feminism at the same time. Right, right, because, you're, right, because a you're lot of these... You're women for having sex, and yet... One of the women will eventually outwit the murder the the guy who's going around murdering other women for having sex. Right, and and the funny thing is, you know, there's a lot of uh, gratuitous uh, gratuitous nudity and that that kind of thing. Right, and you know right. because because there's the anti-feminism. You know, a lot of these movies are made by men, and you know mm-hmm. who are they making the movies for? Right, oversex teenage right. boys. So. Right. Or under sex, for that matter, um, and mm. I know I'm stealing a lot of a lot of lines from this documentary, but um, you know, mm. th- there's a lot of people that they interview for this. Um, you know, again, uh, you they bring in a lot of the the folks who designed a lot of the creatures 
that we saw in 1980s horror. Uh, you know, you have Mick Garris, you have Greg Nicotero. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. they talk about Tom Savini. Uh, they didn't interview him, but they right. talk about Tom uh, with this reverence. And there's some some uh, sound bites from Tom, and and I didn't know this. He was a combat photographer in Vietnam. So, oh, I didn't know that either. Right. Oh. So he had this unique knowledge of of how the human body comes apart. And yes. uh, and used it to his advantage as a uh, special effects wizard in Hollywood for, you know, to this day. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's done his fair bit of acting as well. But, uh, you know, another one of these documentaries that I watched uh, was on the original Alien. And it was really, really interesting to see where they got all of the influences for this film, for the for this story. Um, you know, it was influenced by Star Trek episodes and, and previous science fiction movies, mm. but, but also science fiction novels like Weird Tales, you know, the, the stuff uh-huh. that, you know, we grew yeah. up on, you know, the Lovecraftian type stories. Um, and it was really, really interesting to see, you know, and, and how they got H.R. Uh, Giger involved and with the art and mm-hmm. designing the creatures and, and, and all of that stuff. It was, it was really fascinating. Why do why do you think we continue to deconstruct this genre the way we do? This film, do you think? Well, I mean, right now, I think because horror is just having a moment, and horror is having a renaissance. So that sort of brings up. I mean, the response to the renaissance is you kind of deconstruct, or you get you get sort of meta about it. And why this genre now? I mean, when it's science fiction, there'll be science fiction documentaries, and if there's another fantasy boom, you know, which I guess. Or is there? I mean, there's a lot of fantasy in streaming, and you know, Lord of the Rings is coming up on Amazon. So, whether we can uh, deconstruct that, but you're right. At the moment, horror does seem to be commanding a certain amount of attention. I mean, nobody's deconstructing uh, thrillers uh, as much. Although noir, which I'm also a big fan of, and even attempt to write occasionally, noir also has its adherence. Although more of the deconstructing of noir seems to be literary beast would have come across lately agreed and, and to, it is getting yeah. its tribute with noir alley on turner classic movies hosted by eddie muller right, right? it's and, right. and he he's the one who's giving you the deconstruction right he's the he's the the self-appointed expert of film noir and, right. and you know he gives you uh, the prologue and the epilogue before these film before and after these films and he's mm. the one who seems to deconstruct Albeit, you know, singularly with each film, but uh, right. but yeah, that seems to be you don't seem to have this, you know, noir documentary, right? If there if it exists, I'll watch it because I I'm with you. I'm I'm a big fan uh, of noir. My friend Chris, who who's on the show once a month, uh, we talk about uh, noir a lot, especially neo noir, and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of films, even science fiction films like Blade Runner, Masquerade right. as a right. film noir. So, right. you know, but as, as we were just talking, it, it seems like for whatever reason, you know, Eli Roth's series on uh, AMC, The History of Horror, and, you know, even um, Mark Gaddis uh, of um, uh, Sherlock fame plays uh, Mycroft All right. opposite mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, you know, did a three-part history of horror series for bbc so i just find it really really interesting and you can uh further uh you know expound on on your point uh, it just seems like you know for whatever reason we are deconstructing this genre probably not for the first time 
Well, no, I mean, each and each creature, I mean, you think of all this been written about, you know, vampires and then the zombies. Uh, I'm pretty partial to zombies, as you know. Um, but sometimes there's a creature of the moment, but you're right that horror seems to be just en masse kind of a genre of the moment. Um, because uh, there is this horror renaissance and all these great stories are being told or retold, as as we've discovered at the outset, right, with all the remakes uh, and redos coming our way. But um, I think I think that's that's part of it. It's because it's so prevalent, and it may be. I don't know if if it's more. I mean, theatrically at least, streaming is different. Series are different because there's genres you can find everything and i'm watching a, if we have time i'm watching an upcoming a series is going to be coming up on amazon in a couple of weeks that i've liked so far but um but theatrically i guess horror seems to be kind of the genre of of the moment i mean other, other than other than Mar- i mean there's like tent poles and marvel movies which are blend science fiction and fantasy and kind of but all the genres can be in a marvel movie you have like you have superhero movies and we have certain uh, franchises superhero star wars james bond things like that but just as far as a sort of a an ambient or more pervasive genre horror seems to be the one where it doesn't need to be like a franchise necessarily i mean stephen king is a franchise unto himself <laughs> but you know you Very have true. you can Right, but um, look at Jordan Peele. We were talking about before we uh, started uh, going before we were on air. I mean, in a way, horror at least provides kind of an ent- an entree for different voices uh, that other. I mean, you can't tell a drama anymore in theatrical. I mean, you can maybe do it in streaming, but like when I was growing up in the seventies, probably drama was uh, you know, I mean, Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, things like that. Right, drama was kind of the main, and studios were interested in releasing these adult, thoughtful dramas which they are not interested in in, in that theatrical they might do it in their streaming series you can do it on Paramount Plus but you're not going to do it as a Paramount movie because you'll lose money now at least <laughs> that's how they think well and I also think you know as, as good as some of these cinematic series have been you know, a la Midnight Mass or The Haunting of Hill House or, oh, right. you know, some of these is some of them need to be condensed into two hour movies I, you know, the one that comes to mind is one I've been watching called From and, uh, you know, this thing, uh, it was kind of funny. The first season's 10 episodes, which could have probably condensed, been condensed into about four. And, yeah. you know, we just find out now, oh, it's been picked up for season two. I'm like, I sure as hell hope so. There's so much unresolved at the end of season one. Um, yeah. The story goes like nowhere. Right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I, I, yeah. it wasn't, you know, I thought it was going to be one of those limited run deals. But, um, you know, speaking of, of streaming, so let's, let's talk about that because streaming has become blockbuster on a Friday night. I, 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 right, I used right. to get paralyzed in a, in a blockbuster looking for horror movies to watch. And this, this was something mm-hmm. that documentary brought up as well. Like, this is what you did. You were exposed to films you would have never been exposed to That's otherwise, right. right? So, because there were so many things that went straight to VHS. Well... Now with streaming, I, I run into the same paralysis, except I'm flipping, right? I'm going through whatever streaming service mm-hmm. I'm on. Right. Um, right. And, you know, we, you know, just recently the news broke that, you know, Netflix lost, you know, what was it? Mm-hmm. Almost a quarter of a million subscribers overnight. Right. Um, they're, you know, it seems like they're canceling series that they, they're investing in. But when it comes to films, especially horror films, there is no shortage of things to at least try. 
to at least give you know 15 minutes to it if it sucks you bail out of it but there just seems to be this endless selection of i'm sure it's the the case for other genres too but it seems like there's this endless supply of horror films of varying quality well, the horror was always a varying. I mean, that was the thing about the genre. I mean, sci-fi too, but <laughs> good point. Always generously put. It was right, always right. Varying, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah, a varying quality. But um, yeah. you know, one of the things that that kind of bothers me is social media's influence on opinion because so many people, everybody's taste mm-hmm. is different, right? So. And, and I've really had to, to step away from these, these toxic discussions where, you know, you might go online and say, man, I really liked Chopping Mall 8. I'm like, how could you like that? That's just a stupid movie. I got to get to mm-hmm. the, I finally got to the point where I'm like, you like what you like. You, you like this stupid <laughs> movie, you go right ahead. I'm not going to say a word. You go ahead and like what you like. But I find so many people offering their opinions of films and, and a lot of films that they they like, I'm like, this is crap. This is why. Yeah. How in the world did you like that movie? I mean, Malignant's the one that comes to mind. I mean, that caused a firestorm online. But I hated that damn movie. But so many people liked it. I'm like, okay, well, either I'm something's wrong with me, or you people have different tastes. I don't. I just don't get it. But you do get mm-hmm. exposed to uh, with the streaming services to. Not only American, but you know, you get uh, exposed to foreign horror like never, never before, and I think right. that's fantastic. Right. I just saw this great film. Um, it's really small. I don't even know how they're distributing it. If it's going to be VOD, but I just did an interview with uh, with the cinematographer. It's actually it's set in Macedonia and Eastern Europe, even though it's uh, Australians. And I think uh, the guy who grew up, the director who wrote it, grew up in Eastern Europe in Macedonia. It's in the north of Greece, and um, but he had a mostly an Australian crew. But it's called "You Won't Be Alone," and it's a witch story, and it's a girl who is raised by a witch. Like her mother has to let her be raised by a witch, and then she has this life going from village to village. And when the description of it, I thought it'd be like a Hammer film. I know well, that's that's cool. I'm down. I'm I, you know they gave me a screening link, which is what happens a lot of it in journal in film journalism. I mean, sometimes you still go to screening rooms, but a lot of smaller movies that aren't. Marvel, I mean, what they'll do is the publicist will send you a link and you watch will stuff, even stuff that's not technically streaming, you will watch it online um, or streaming at home uh, to prep for an interview. So that's how I saw this. But um, so I didn't I did not have a full theatrical experience. And it starts out its first act. It, it's, I thought this is like too much of a self-aware art film because there's a lot of voiceovers with nothing happening because the girl is initially raised in a cave. I don't want to give too much away. But when she finally <laughs> ventures out into the world in Acts 2 and 3, and she learns this kind of form of shape-shifting that's unique to the story, how she migrates from body to body, um, or being to being, and it's basically because she was led, raised in an isolated, which she has to learn about the world and life and love and death and blood and sex and all these... And how she it becomes quite touching and quite affecting. It was far more moving than I expected it to be. And a couple of others, uh, people have called it the goriest film that Terrence Malick never made, <laughs> because you know because of its it's the stylistic it sort of evokes uh, what was it the new, the new world that Terrence Malick film, but it's it's shorter than that I can tell you. 
Um, but it's a film that had, in this case, had I not just happened to be a guy who writes a cinematography column and the publisher said, hey, do you, are you interested in this? And I said, yeah, sure. A witch migrating, migrating from soul to soul. I mean, that's, I'll definitely look at that and talk about that. Um, and it just, it really kind of knocked me out because I had no, ex I had heard of it and I had no expectations about it. So the fact that I was really affected by it at the end was, you know, just a, just a bonus, you know, sort of a work perk. Yeah, and there's some there's some great stuff coming out of Korea too, right? And, yes. and just that part of the world, and um, some really interesting. We've had some interesting monster movies with the host. We've had, you know, uh, I believe it was Japanese. We had uh, audition not that right. long ago, and you know, it's just really. Uh, interesting to see and we talked about it before the last time you were on the show we talked about literature and where a lot of the the uh the horrors coming from right is the the elder gods and and uh folk mm -hmm. you know uh folk horror and, and that right. kind of thing right but i think i think there's there's some other stories um you know obviously james wan uh directly and indirectly has brought back the ghost story in in a way that um you know, we're still we're still seeing more and more and more from him and his contemporaries with uh, the Conjuring universe and and uh, right. you know a bunch of other the Insidious franchise and and a bunch of others um, that uh, you know the Ghost Story never gets old. You know, and that's one of those things that it was kind of funny in this documentary. One of the either Eli Roth or or the other one they were talking about how. You know, we know vampires don't exist. We know we're, we know werewolves don't exist. But ghosts, we we all can tell a ghost story. We all have had some sort of, you know, weird mm. experience where you know it may be right. Maybe it was a spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it was a spirit mm -hmm. or a, a phantasm or something. And uh, so I think I think that's one of the things that I found interesting in the last you know fifteen twenty years or so. As much as as you know, your favorite uh, zombies and mine vampires keep coming back around. You can't keep a good monster down, but mm -hmm. I do think uh, in the last twenty years or so is the resurgence of the ghost story. And you know, some are really good. The original Conjuring and Conjuring Two are fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think I think one of the uh, Insidious films I really really liked, and it wasn't even related to the the first couple. It's like the third one. It was like skeleton key or something like that. Really well mm -hmm. done. Um, you know, so I think, uh, the ghost story is, is always going to be some sort of untapped, um, untapped vein. What I find interesting is, uh, within the last few years, I went back and I hadn't, I'd never seen it. Uh, George C. Scott in the changeling. And oh, I've never seen that either. Actually, What a fantastic movie. Um, wow. yeah, you've got to go back and you got to watch it. I'm sure there's some streaming service you can find it on. George C. Scott okay. is George C. Scott, right? Um, and yeah, it's yeah. just a wonderful, speaking uh, of fire starter, right? Right, right. Yeah. It's yeah. such a fantastic mm. movie. Um, I, I highly recommend it. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you heard of it. You're like, eh, you, you're scrolling, you know, one of the streaming services on a Friday or Saturday night. You're like, eh, why not? Mm -hmm. Let's give that a shot. It's not your typical changeling story, right? It's not your typical Irish, uh, 
you know, fairy in the woods replacing your mm-hmm. your, your child story. It's it's a, mm-hmm. a straight up scare fest ghost story, and it's really well done and and highly recommend. Uh, because that was the other thing that that kind of was happening in the early '80s. At the same time, the slasher film was happening. Was you get some really good ghost stories, and you got you got that one. Uh, you also got Ghost Story, which is based on the oh, Peter Straub novel, which I have and I, I haven't read. But the film, when I saw it as a kid, scared the living shit out of me. And right, uh, Fred Fred Astaire and John Houseman as the old. Um, who's a Don and Mitchell? Who are the, the four old guys with the secret? And then yes, these these, these guys who, you know, who had been acting for decades at that point, who get cast in the film as the old guys, and they kept flashing to the yourselves and then the terrible secret and the things they did to Alex, to Alice Kurgi, right? Yes, yes. Before, before she was the Borg Queen, yes. Yes, and before she was in Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, um, yeah, right. yeah. She's she's horror royalty at this point as well, but yeah, mm-hmm. um, she and she's always been good in anything uh, she's been in, uh, but yeah, really, really interesting um, when it uh, you know was all said and done because then you end up with Poltergeist. Right. Which is, yes. you know, I watched that not that long ago and, uh, you know, watched it again, I think, uh, last October. Um, it still holds your attention. It still holds up to this day, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and talk about a film that was perfectly cast with Craig T. Nelson, right. uh, you know, and it, it's the ghost story is one of those, you know, probably going back to the haunting uh, from then on yeah. is is. You know, when it's really well done, um, is one of those those subgenres that really doesn't go anywhere, but it takes somebody like James Wan to reinvent it. And and you know, I don't know how he did it or why he did it, but I'm glad he did because it's it's really opened the, the doors to a lot of good filmmaking. Well, another recent well, recent now, I guess it's four or five years ago, but uh, Dave Lally, the director who most recently did Green Knight, I don't know, he did an earlier film called A Ghost Story, which is with Casey Affleck. And the ghost in that, because this is low-tech indie, he's literally, when he becomes a ghost, he's a sheet, like Charlie Brown. He's a sheet with two holes cut in it. And he stands in the corner of this room that had been his house in life, and the other inhabitants move in and out, and, and how he interrelates with the, the, the subsequent denizens of this house. Um, and then eventually discovers a ghost in the other house across the way. And it's really great. I mean, I don't want to oversell it. It's not a perfect film, but considering what limit, what, what limitations they had to work with for this indie, um, it's, it's really captivating and it's well worth a watch. Yeah. I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to, to give it a, a look. Um, you know what I find interesting and, and this is going to, I'm going <laughs> to, it's going to be kind of a little weird. Um, so I have Boomerang on, on Hulu live TV and, and mm-hmm. it airs Looney Tunes cartoons just about every morning. And when I'm not doing much, I'm watching Bugs Bunny cartoons and you know, mm-hmm. you'll find this interesting. I am amazed at the influences on the Warner brothers animators that they brought to the screen as cartoons. Mm-hmm. And and one is 1930s and 40s horror. 
There's a vampire cartoon Ooh. with Bugs Bunny. There's there's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's another one with scary leprechauns. There's another one that has uh, Witch Hazel is the character, right? If you oh, remember right. Witch Hazel. Um, I do the laugh, but I don't want to embarrass myself. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm just I'm amazed because there's a ton of film noir references, too. And mm-hmm. and it just it cracks me up to go back and watch these cartoons and see all the different references, especially Universal and even MGM and Paramount Horror from the 30s and 40s that made their way into children's cartoons. It cracks me up. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder how circumspect they had to be because being Warner Brothers cartoons, because they also, of course, cannibalized Warner Brothers. You go back and. There's you know, cartoons of Bogart and Edward G. Robinson, right? And yeah, Bing Crosby. Rizzo, right, Casablanca. They do a bunch, Oh, yeah. They can get away with being Warner Brothers, but I just wonder if they had to tread a little more carefully when they were doing like Universal monsters and stuff. I mean, hell, it's just interesting to, to wonder about. Yeah, and, and probably the ones where it wasn't universal, it was it was, you know, alluded to, it was an homage, it wasn't right. like it was the vampire character wasn't Dracula, it was just a vampire and you know, right. it, it matches right. wits with Bugs Bunny and loses, uh, you know, as you do. Um As you do. Right. Exactly. So I just thought it was really, really interesting the the influence of, of these genres on our, our children's cartoons. I mean obvious mm-hmm. obviously war was a big influence in World War Two and even World War One, uh with with a lot of these uh animations, but I just I blew my mind going back and yeah, there's definitely the uh you know, even even classical music, even opera, right? There's a yeah, of course, a, right? There's a takeoff on, on the, the right and a barber of Seville and 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 right, uh, right. Um, you know, kill the wabbit is set to Wagner. Yes, I, that's it, right. You know, I mean, there's a meme floating around online that says, you know, this is how I learned. This is my introduction to classical music, and it shows, you know, Bugs well, Bunny right. and, and Elmer Fudd in in Kill the Wabbit. <laughs> I learned mm-hmm. Wagner in English class writing a biography or writing a book report on a biography well, of Wagner, but whatever. You get it from Looney Tunes or Apocalypse Now, depending on <laughs> <I guess, laughs> yeah. your age. You're right. Know. I know. I mean, I'm dating myself. But yeah, it's, it's, but it, I just found it really interesting that, you know, it just permeates popular culture. Mm-hmm. The, this genre has, has, you know, just always seems to pop up in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was interesting. Um, yep. One of the things I wanted to to chat with you about too, is, as we talk about these streaming services and every, everything else, and I was talking to my my best friend from my hometown recently, and one of the things that I've been struggling with uh, the last year or two or whatever it is is this this permeation of of the next generation of technology. Um, yeah. And I kind of I kind of blame Zuckerberg for this by by throwing this term out into the ether, but uh, it does seem like a, a bunch of us old heads are, are kind of shrinking back from it. You know, I hear you know you see more and more commercials for it, and it's kind of funny. Even the Steph Curry commercial kind of makes fun of it. Um, you know, but your, your cryptocurrency and yeah. and things like the the blockchain and uh, NFTs and right. 
the what's commonly referred to as the metaverse, which is a bullshit term because there is no the right. metaverse. Um, right. It's going to be multiple. Uh, everybody's going right. to have their own uh, metaverse experience. But um, I just I, I find myself shrinking back from this, and and it's funny as I sit here and stare at my 1910 Underwood that's on my desk. Um, you know, there was a documentary I watched. Uh, that has a lot of Tom Hanks in it, and you'd appreciate this because it's about uh, some of it is, is filmed in Oakland. Um, mm. it's, it's about the history of the typewriter. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of us old heads are shrinking back from this this Uber technology. Like the current version of the internet's enough for us. We don't need to go any further. We're done. We got streaming video that Al Gore promised us. Um, we've got right. we've got the internet where we, you know, it's like this interactive encyclopedia. We've got social media, which most people shouldn't have access to anyway. That's right. Right, because they shouldn't be allowed to have a voice. Because and I, I have the video call, and we can make the video calls that I first saw in two thousand and one, as as a tot. You know, as eight, I was eight or nine, and my dad took me to the premiere of two thousand and one. Right, and I, I remember thinking. Go well, ahead. I remember thinking like. Will because I was thinking I'm going to be middle aged by 2001, right? Sure. Which is now, of course, 20 years. Then I'm 20 years past. <laughs> Rapidly, if I still even am in the last vestiges of middle age, which is his own separate discussion. But I remember thinking as a kid, "Ooh, am I going to have video calls like that in my life when I'm like in my 40s? Is that?" And here's how you say. So we have that. It's like. How much more? How much more do they need to give us? <laughs> but and then there's then there's people like us who are crying for the days of classic radio. Right. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. with the and we'll talk about uh, an update on this and, you know, I'll have you uh, update me in a second on, on you know, this uh, kind of this radio dramatization you're working on. Um, uh, yes. uh, but um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting because I freaking radio today is 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 ridiculous. But, you know, I host this podcast because I miss being a disc jockey. Right. That That's part of right. why I do yeah. it. It's an audio only program. Um, but let's go back even further. Let's go back to 1935. Go back and watch Werewolf of London with Henry Hall. There's a scene mm-hmm. where somebody comes to his front door and he has like this almost iPad looking device on his his, I don't know, his desk or his work table that it's like a, a doorbell camera. It shows him who's at the fucking front door. And wow. I'm looking at yeah when I I, I that went, ring yeah and I had right mm-hmm. the, the the ring thing right or, or nest or whatever you want to call it I'm, yeah that's right I'm looking at this going this is 1935 and they predicted this mm-hmm. so you know you're talking 2001 and Arthur C Clarke yes was very visionary and 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 predicted a lot of uh, advances in space travel and and uh, you know exploration and that kind of thing but. 1935, Universal Horror, their first werewolf film, right? Before wow. Lon Chaney Jr. and The Wolfman in 1941. Here you have 1935, and they're predicting a doorbell camera. Mm-hmm. I, you know, so it, it's really interesting because I think it was H.G. Wells or Jules Verne, one of those guys had, uh, you know, uh, was prescient in a, enough to predict the H-bomb. Oh, Right. So, you know, I mean, there's a reason why there was a series called Prophets of Science Fiction a few years back on Mm -hmm. on one of the cable channels. Right. But I just find it really interesting that the more the more we advance technologically, the more I want to shrink back. 
the more I want to recoil from it. And, and, you know, again, I'm doing an audio only program. Now, granted, I'm using very, very modern techniques to distribute it. Uh, right. And the show wouldn't exist if it wasn't for these modern techniques. If it wasn't for, you know, iTunes and, and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think I would be a very happy man if I went to my grave never strapping an Oculus headset to my face. Yeah. I, I Yes, a good... No, go ahead. Well, I was at a VR panel in L.A. Comic Con, which was a, we talked about before we went on air, too, which, of course, you, you have your own stories about. But I was there on a press badge, and it was the first big con that had come back to be in person. It was right ahead of the Omicron wave. But you could see the Omicron wave was out there in the distance already. So I, you know, some people were unmasked in the food court and I thought, well, that's, I mean, there's, we're already rolling some dice here. But I went around masked some panels and one of the ones I went to was a virtual reality panel. And it was all these uh, mostly younger folk. I have to say, I, I can wax generational here. And they were, some of them were, dare we say, avatars of the virtual life. Um, they had, they're known in online. They have, I guess that's what they're on this panel cachet reputations. And, um, they get to test a lot of this equipment. And this one couple, they talk about these, like these, their weekends were spent, like it was some nightclub they went to virtually where they would meet friends from Australia and wherever. And, um, this is part of their social life. So I guess, but, but the reality is to do that, I mean, the reality is they're sitting in some apartment or house somewhere in Southern California, not moving or not moving much with some Oculus like gear on their heads visiting there. I mean, I guess maybe if it's virtual, maybe they are kind of slowly walking around trying not to bump into furniture. If you're walking around the nightclub, I'm not, um, but it, that did seem, that's where I felt a generational moment. Cause that, that finally started to seem peculiar to me as an old like, well, it's not, it's not like a better way to exchange messages or to research information or to see a face when you're making a call i mean all that i get or even easier access to entertainment all that stuff i get but now you're actually like you don't even want to be in the same space you're actually in which i know entertainment takes us away and i understand that we about escapism but but this just seemed finally especially if you're doing it like all the time like to the to the degree where you're not doing stuff where you actually are present and inhabit. I mean, so does it preclude that? Do you see virtual people now more than actual people in your life? I mean, where does that, where does that eventually lead? You know, as a, right. I mean, we've all, all become antisocial hermits anyway. So, yeah. you know, and that, that's kind of what the internet and social media and a whole lot of other things have done to us. And, you know, COVID didn't help, but, I mean the right. one the one application I see that I that that I find interesting and and uh, Epic Games is already doing this is the virtual concert, right? The v- virtual music event, right? Not everybody can mm-hmm. go to to a show and see their favorite band perform, whether it's geographic, whether it's financial, whatever the reason is. Not everybody can go, you know, dedicate their lives to following fish around the country for six months. Right. Um, You know, so that's the one application of this, I think, when it comes to accessibility, when it comes to, you know, breaking down barriers of, of, say, you know, accessibility to an artist 
right? I see some mm-hmm. of that, but some of that, you know, is, is there with Zoom as well. But that's the one application I see that I think would be really, really neat. I see some some augmented reality opportunities, especially in, in advertising and, uh, you know, consumer experiences and that kind of thing that would be really interesting, right, once we evolve beyond what we know and loathe as, as straight advertising. Right. Right. But as far as, you know, I don't, for me, I now live in a place, and, and you live in L.A., for crying out loud, the ultimate, you know, tactile experience. But I live in a place, I have deer in my backyard. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not going to put on some VR goggles to go look at deer, at, at, you know, in, in Zion when I got them in my backyard. Right. Right? I mean, I you know, I, I if I take a walk early yeah. enough in the morning... The criminal raccoons around here are raiding garbage cans. Mm. I got, I have wildlife. My wife took a picture of a bald eagle recently. Oh, wow. Right, right in the name, you know, right in the neighborhood, like less than three mm-hmm. miles from the house. I don't need virtual reality goggles to experience my world. I don't yeah. want them. I don't need them. And, and again, as you mentioned, at what point do we stop socializing altogether and we just sit in, in even more of an opiate state than we do when we're just watching television and with, with these goggles strapped to our head. Well, right. I mean, it's, it's Aldous Huxley, right? And it was a Neil poster, the author, and amusing ourselves to death. And he said of the two main dystopian futures, uh, the, the two main literary dystopian futures, at least that we had in mid-century, which was either Brave New World or 1984, and we're all afraid of 1984, and we've seen Certainly, we have at least one major political party dedicated to, to 1984, making it, you know, and, and other governments in the world. So we see that people trying to manifest that. But Poster's point, and this was like in the 90s, was actually winning out without even without even sort of bad actors trying to overthrow democracies or anything, is the Aldous Huxley version, is the Brave New World which, for those who feel, if you've been a while, you know, if you haven't read or whatever, the Soma, people were just, nobody was resisting because they were just too blissed out with this drug they were being provided. And he's saying, that's what we're doing to ourselves. There is no resistance against bad actors, because not because we can't foment or, you know, or don't have the will, it's because we're too distracted. But we're go back to Cronenberg. Go back to Videodrome. Yeah, it's right, the same right. thing, right? Right. Uh, you know, it's it's that we, you know, Cronenberg in in Videodrome. You know, as much as I, I don't care for James Woods anymore, um, yeah. you know that film was was oddly prophetic. That we've mm-hmm. become one with the entertainment, right? One with the content, one with the content delivery system. Um, and you know, when you when you look at that scene where where they're inserting the VHS videotape into James Wood's midsection, yes. it's like how yes. how much more metaphorical and prophetic do you want to get? I you right. know, so right. so it's it's one of those things where, you know, at what point is is enough enough is enough and is all in my mind, and you alluded to it contributes to the willfully ignorant electorate. That's right. This increasingly, which is interesting too, we have this plethora of uh, accessibility in theory, right? All this, all this availability of of entertainments, of information, of things that never had has have been as widely available to so many people as ever before, uh, 
and yet we are more siloed off and separated than ever before. I'm clearly not the first one to make that observation, but our conversation is just underscoring it, right? We are more, even with this, this vast buffet of, of knowledge, of entertainment, of news, we are more siloed and separated by it than brought together or uh, sort of you know, enlightened or expanded by it, at least uh, certainly the way it manifests in the world right now. Right. And 100%. And, you know, when I go back and I watch film noir and I go back and, and watch anything from the 30s and 40s, it's like, what do you see people doing for leisure? They're reading, right? Because, I mean, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a little radio listening and then there's some early TV watching, but, but people are reading newspapers and books. And it's like, yeah. you know, I know it was a different time and all. But at the same time, I think when we stopped reading for our information, because, I mean, as you mentioned, siloed, right? Because when you do read for information now, it is incredibly polarized. It's incredibly split and, and siloed mm -hmm. into, you know, all kinds of different uh, buckets uh, of, of bias that, you know, but when we stopped reading for our information, that's when the dumbing down of society began. And whether it was on purpose or, or by design or accidental, it's definitely on purpose now. But, you know, the dawn of it, I think, I think right. was just, you know, was so innocent. Let's communicate with as many people as possible through these great mediums. I don't think they realized or understood the, the Frankenstein's monster they let out into the world. Right, I mean, it's the genesis, and especially politically, where the soundbite, you know, the, the the snarky slogan becomes more important than your actual platform, your actual your actual abilities or knowledge to hold a political office and implement and effectively implement policy is no longer important. Having the best sort of meme game and the best <laughs> snark during a campaign is now more important. <laughs> and this is somehow, you know, this is now viewed as a leadership quality by a, a large portion of the population. Yeah, which is absolutely mind-boggling and disgusting, if you ask me. Um, mm -hmm. Right. So, here on the Get the Knack podcast, I'm joined by my good friend Mark London Williams. And Mark, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of where we're we're headed. Um, I, I hesitate to use the term post-COVID because um, right. people are still getting sick, and I know I used it in a teaser for the show, but. Um, I think what we're what we're seeing now, especially after a lot of the mask mandates have been uh, dropped around the country, and even with this new booster, which I have yet to get, I need to get it. My wife has it, but I don't. Um, I never leave the house, so whatever. Um, but what we're, we we talked about it a little bit uh, a little while ago, but you know, you you were able to go to this this event, this screener. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, events like that have been put on hold. Um, we got a joke around the house when, you know, you're getting ready for the Oscars. Oh, it's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. Yeah. Cause there's three fucking films that came out in the last year. That's why. Yeah. Uh, right. And it just, what's the landscape look like right now as, you know, Dr. Uh, Anthony Fauci comes out and says, you know, we're, we're post-pandemic, we're, we're out of the pandemic phase. Uh, Europe is, says, okay, we're out of the emergency part of this. What's the entertainment landscape look like right now? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, they just had, um, what is it, 
CinemaCon in, in Las Vegas where they show, where they try to get uh, theater owners. It was the same time as NAB. And the CinemaCon is where they show, they bring stars and directors in to get theater owners and theater, more more accurately probably now, theater chain owners excited about booking these films that are coming up in the next two. It's always like, I mean, it's later than the year, but but there's always like sort of two, a couple of years ahead. Like here's what's we're filming and here's the sequel and get excited and get ready to book this in thousand theaters. So they're, they're still anticipating. There's still this model. We're anticipating crowds, you know, live crowds going out to pay money to see home and you know, Spider-Man no way home of course is, is giving them all hope. But when you look at, I mean, but basically there's some question of how well movies outside of superhero tent poles and maybe James Bond are, are doing. And again, the more thoughtful, sort of adult drama if you want to use that term if that was already endangered older older people who are already a small part of a smaller part of the theater going audience compared to younger you know that 1727 because they want to be out they want to be out of the house and out of the dorm room etc but um who 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 movies will be live theatrical movie who theatrical movies will be for and what kind of crowds you can get, or will it just be? I mean, are they going to be? Are they just going to yield to sort of this uh, the, the the tier by T I E R the tiers where it's like superheroes and franchise superheroes, Star Wars, James Bond, and theaters. But now we already have a Best Picture winner that's streaming, right? Al, I mean, Apple Plus TV um, with with Coda just won Best Picture, which is a prize that has eluded both Netflix and Amazon Prime as as much advertising dollars as they poured into that that particular grail. Uh, the Best Picture statue has eluded them, um, and now here comes Apple TV Plus, and they win it. So, and that's a thoughtful. And Coda is very good. I, I was touched by it. I mean, it's you know, and it was formulaic because you don't really see that many movies about. Uh, deaf families where you know where you then you you as a hearing person you're you're looking at the subtitles because they're communicating in a way that you're precluded from unless you know ASL so it's a very engaging theatrical experience but it's too but it's it's on Apple and so you, so those kinds of movies are on Apple and then you're going to have your you have TikTok and uh, you know YouTube and things like that um and, and other and, and streaming and genre films. Uh, I guess genre films can be kind of ecumenical, depending whose whose movie it is. But whether this bifurcation is going to be permanent, whether the whether it's going to be kind of a permanent post-pandemic. I mean, we talk about short windows, and yes, they might run in the theater for a week or two. But the reality is, movies like Coda, their lot, their life is not really going to be in theaters anymore. It's not going to be like in the '70s, where suddenly this movie, The Godfather. That was we we talked again uh, at the outset, right? About our shutting down our you know closing time for our parents' house, our childhood homes, and what that means. So I was closing a lot of boxes uh, that were mine that I'd left between my moves, which is kind of what you do because you're in these small apartment spaces and you have boxes of mom and dad's, and suddenly the decades go by and you're the old person and mom and dad are gone and there are your boxes from your twenties, you know, <laughs> waiting for you to go through again. And I'm going through all these these letters and, and the budding film journalist in me, you can see, I guess, sort of what my <laughs> sort of what the road ahead for me was going to be, you know, these film newsletters I was writing, things like that. And so I had this one friend I since lost touch with, who was also a, a film journalist guy in the Midwest back when you wrote letters. And these are like physical letters I'm going through and taking out clips. And there's all this stuff about like seventies movies 
being booked and being and the extensions being booked by theater owners who are not parts of change or part of very small chains, right? So some movie does well and people are still coming to see it and you wonder this is what we're gonna extend it for another two weeks mm. instead of sending the prince back. Oh, oh, this is still, and so The Godfather was like this, you know, played like 52 weeks in some theater in New York, not because anybody planned it, because it kept, because word of mouth kept growing and people kept coming and new people kept coming. And so those sorts of theatrical experiences are done. Everything has a play that nobody can just keep extending a movie so, in a theater. So anymore. here's my question with that, yeah. right? Because you've got the first run theater. What about the right. second run theater? What was the, there was what was it called General Cinemas? You remember General Cinemas? Yeah, back in where? the day, right? They yeah, were sure. they were the second run, right? So if you missed because now everything goes goes to video, so you know you you watch it on streaming instead of you know going to see it in these second run theaters. I I had a uh, earth science teacher in high school. She bought a theater in Rochester, New York, and, and refurbished it. It was one of these old Art Deco houses, these mm -hmm. art house movie theaters, and she would do second run. And mm -hmm. I remember taking my my high school sweetheart, and and we went, you know, to her theater to, to see a film. What about those theaters? Well, exactly. Do you, I mean, do you know of any that have survived uh, the plague years? I'm not sure. The ones not, that I used to like it. Not if they are movie houses exclusively, right? I mean, you right. look at the Fox right. Theater exactly. and Paramount exactly. in Oakland. Um, you look at the Tracy Grand where where I lived in, right. in Tracy, California. The, Right, the UC in Berkeley, which I grew up going to as a repertory movie theater, and now as a, as a nonprofit shared shared art space, which sometimes has movies. Right, and that that's the way the Tracy Grand is. Right, I mean right. they they have a lot of uh, like continuing education classes. They have you know summer programs for kids. Uh, my mm -hmm. my my uh, youngest did uh, you know a comic book art class there one time. Um, mm -hmm. You know so. Um, but yeah, if you're not doing something other than movies, um, you, you know it's hard to justify your existence uh, if you're a second run or or an art house theater, right? And, and which is a shame because this is where all the good architecture is. Yeah, I know. Right? I mean, I'm a huge Art Deco fanatic, and yeah. you know, and and that Art Deco aesthetic, especially in these refurb theaters like like the Paramount. I saw several shows there. I saw Dracula on the big screen at the Paramount in in Oakland. Mm -hmm. uh, several comedy shows. Um, I saw Celtic Woman there for fuck's sake. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't good. Um, if I wanted to to see, you know, wanted to listen to Enya music, I would have gone to an Enya concert. But anyway, yeah. I, I digress. Um, but um, but, you know, uh, Fox Theater was used for numerous uh, types of events. Um, right. And, and another one of those those refurbished uh, Art Deco theaters, um, you know, names like Pantages and, and things like that might be lost to uh, lost to the sands of time if, if people aren't careful. Uh, mm hmm. You know, and it, it it's really interesting because you know the the, the multiplex, the the cineplex of the eighties kind of kind of put these these fantastic art house theaters in the in the background, right? Which is a shame, right? And now and now streaming. I mean, it's not even. I mean, it's we're far past it being you know DVD, but now it's it's streaming, and of course, people have um fairly nice home theaters to, to i mean you know, we can't i mean speaking of technological changes i mean you're going to go out and, and pay 
this increasingly extraordinary price for film tickets and for the snacks in the theater. It's like it used to be when I grew up, like seeing live theater. That's what you pay to see live theater. Now that's what you pay to just go to a movie on a Friday night or heck a Thursday night. I remember paying like four bucks, four fifty a ticket to go see yeah. a movie, right? And that didn't matter if it was your your you know. Your Friday night, 7 p.m. showing, or your, you know, then there were Sunday matinee prices um, and that kind of thing. I'll tell you what, I'll never forget this as long as I live. And, and nobody's really asked me this. And um, I was thinking about it because I saw a similar question online. And I, th- I thought it was really interesting. It's like, where did you get your love for X? How did you fall in love with whatever? And I thought about, why did I fall in love with, with like classic horror films? Where did I get this from? And I, and I, I kept trying to think, you know, King Kong was one thing. Because when you, on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon, and you hear that RKO, instantly I thought, King Kong's coming on. And I would be disappointed if it wasn't. But... You know, I'm like, where did I get this from? And I tell you what, I was 11 years old and I saw Phantom of the Opera in one of these old art house theaters in Rochester, New York. Couldn't even tell you which Mm. one or the name of it. Mm -hmm. Phantom of the Opera with a live orchestra. Oh, wow. Yeah. And ever since then. You know, that's why I argue with people all the time. They want to talk about, you know, Gerard Butler and Phantom of the Opera. I'm like, no, 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 no. Phantom of the that's Opera right. is a fucking horror movie from 1925. That's right. Right? And it's not, you know, some love story musical. Exactly. Right? That's right. So that's where I get my love for this from. And, you know, I've got a lot of these films on, on DVD. And, um, you know, I'm looking at my wall of DVDs right now. Um you know, but it's kind of funny. My lazy ass, rather than putting on a DVD, I'll I'll find it on streaming if I want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny, but uh, you know, we talk about kind of going backwards. I'm thinking about volunteering uh, at the uh, local radio station here. It's all volunteer community oh. radio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you Good. know, and I know I know classic radio. I'll tell my part of it why it's near and dear to my heart, and then you can you can uh, update me on where you are with uh, your project. Um, but um, when I was a kid, my father found this radio station over the air that would air all these classic radio shows, and he would sit there with a tape recorder and cassette tapes, yep. and he'd record yep. Fibber McGee and Molly, The Shadow, um, you know, The Lone Ranger, all these different mm-hmm. things, and. You know, he then he would he would find them at the record store. He would find yeah. commercially produced, you know, reproductions of of these programs, right. and he'd buy a set, you know, or buy a show or whatever. Well, one of the things I thought was really really neat, you know, having Sirius XM satellite radio in the car back when I was commuting in the Bay Area was Radio Classics, and. Yeah. You know, I was actually exposed to some shows I never heard of, and one of my favorites became uh, Johnny Dollar. And I had mm-hmm. never heard of Johnny Dollar, and, and it's very noir, right? He's an insurance investigator, but this is very, very, uh, very noir. Bob Bailey was, uh, you know, there's a couple guys played uh, Johnny Dollar, but Bob Bailey was, was the best at it. And, and I thought it was really interesting. And, you know, 
being able to listen to, you know, The Shadow or Mystery or some of these programs are, you know, one, one, maybe eh, might have been two years. They did uh, Bing Crosby radio at Christmas. And, mm-hmm. and from the 40s and 50s, it would air like a week's worth of Bing Crosby Christmas shows and uh-huh. things like, uh, you know, Christmas Sing with Bing. And, you know, it was just it's really, really neat stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm staring at a couple of books I have on the, on the shelf about uh, old time radio. And, you know, radio for me as a broadcaster was was my first love. So. I know you're you're working on a on a passion project when it comes to that kind of thing, um, but uh, you know, and I really really hope it uh, comes to fruition. And I owe you script reads. I know I do, uh-huh. and, I, and I you sent me recent uh, updates. Okay. So, but but just kind of refresh the audience, refresh the the my my very very uh, small but dedicated group of listeners on the project, what it's about because it ties into the theme of the program, which is obviously is the horror genre and and suspense and and but also kind of stepping back from newfangly technology and, and doing things a bit old school. Well, it's kind of an it's, well, thank you for all that. It's um kind of a noir with uh, noir with demons and I had originally thought of it as a screenplay. Um, but, but I, I reworked it as a, um, I wrote a pilot episode and reworked it as, um, as a podcast, which is a kind of radio drama and we say podcast, but really it's like audio drama. I mean, I mean, there's, I know podcasts, there's kind of this documentary, uh, and sort of this conversational form of the podcast that we now think of as a default mode and it's been very successful, but drama, I mean, like fiction, you know, that's been kind of the bringing up the rear with, with podcasting. Um, whereas early radio, like you pointed out, was um, almost dominated by kind of fiction storytelling. If you think of those first couple of decades, right, the 30s and 40s of commercial radio. I mean, there were big band shows and there's new, but really what you had, you had, like you say, Fibber McGee and Molly and The Shadow and, you know, Dimension X. I mean, you had all this programming that would later become television programming by these same networks um, that when they migrated. But you don't really have that with podcasting. It's too much smaller degree. So it's interesting that that field seems to be a little more wide open compared to like everybody wants to write a screenplay. Everybody probably has a screenplay. Everybody wants to write a book, as you know. Everybody now can publish a book, as you know. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's just, we're being deluged by media because it's so easy to make media. Um, and that's good and bad, right? Because on the one hand, these gatekeepers, they, there was less to have to, to try and keep up with because all these gatekeepers, there was no way to physically make the media except unless you got to the gatekeepers. And now, and so they also they also wrongly kept a lot of voices out who we should have heard from. But on the other hand, now every single voice can make a book and can make a show. So now who that's, knows that's what to the, read, what to choose from. Yeah, that's but, the unfortunate part, right? That's right. Yeah. But um, for my show, anyway, it's a demon, it's a demon noir, as I like to call it, and it involves... Lilith or Lilith, who in in Jewish demonology, um, because you know we did we've talked about this before outside the podcast. The, the default for horror in the West is kind of Christian demonology with the Satan and the Exorcist and uh, you know sort of like church based kind of horror for a lot of its themes. A lot of the themes of horror come from 
Christianity. And especially, especially when you, right. I was just going to say, especially with vampires, but even, even Frankenstein is, is a, you know, kind of a, you know, I'm challenging God kind of story, right? In in the Christian sense. But he also comes from the golem, right? The Frankenstein right. comes from golem stories, which are Jewish, which is, you know, the, the clay man brought to life, which also is kind of where the thing and the Hulk come from. I mean, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, both, uh, you know, Kirby especially would kind of use Jewish tropes in some of his comic book storytelling. Um, so if so, golem, which preceded Frankenstein and which uh, Mary Shelley's parents, being fairly uh, versed multiculturally in the, their bohemian milieu in Europe, um, they probably knew Golem's story, so she may have been riffing off that, which is a man brought to life. But Jewishly, the Golem who was brought to life as a protector, you can't usurp the power of God either, and so you have to kind of return the Golem to uh, to Clay when uh, when he wants to become when he wants to become the equal of human life. But you even see that in movies commit. like like Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead has got a, a very very Golem like uh, theme to it. Right, I mean, you oh, know, you know, with, with I Lance. I don't think I've seen Pumpkinhead. Oh, with Lance, Lance Henriksen, right? He plays right. Uh, well, yeah. his his young son is is killed in a in a terrible accident, and he wants retribution. So he goes to the local crone, and 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 digs this thing out of the earth, and and brings it back to life, and and to exact revenge. And 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 the more it, it goes on killing the the people who killed his son, right. it begins to start to look a lot like Lance Henriksen. Yeah, and then it right. you know when when it's all said and done, uh, it ends up back in the ground where it belongs. But you know, right. uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, kind of thing. But yeah. but again, it's that similar f- trope. It's that similar theme that you know this this thing is is brought to life to be an avenger or a protector or however you want to describe it um, mm-hmm. is, is recurring throughout the genre. And it's funny you you mention. Um, you know, not using the the podcast medium uh, for radio drama type stuff. Um, I came across, and I mentioned Mark Gaddis earlier. Mark Gaddis did a uh, radio adaptation of Dracula for the BBC. They mm-hmm. turned it into a seven part podcast, wow. which I downloaded to my phone and and listened to on my commute. Fantastic, uh, mm-hmm. great stuff. And and you know, I had that thought then, like. Why isn't there more of this kind of right. thing, right? I mean, it's definitely there, and people are doing some great work. I mean, I've as I've started to explore what's possible in this medium, in this medium as opposed to this genre, right? Right. Um, but it's not. But the f- potential is not fully. It's not, it's not fully flourishing yet. Again, especially compared to the default mode, which is documentary podcasting or conversational, like we're like talk show. Sort of like we're like, you know, Dick Cavett. We're doing the Dick Cavett style podcast. Sure. And there's the documentary style. Love and those the, are the two main the the two reference. main flavors of pot you know, which also dates me, uh, dates us, but um <laughs> but that's okay. Because yeah. we are of a certain moment, right? The part of Mike but, Douglas um, was played by Jerry Knack. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, but that's a different Oh yeah. That's, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But but yeah, you're hundred percent right. No, you're 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 right. I think um and so we need more more of the uh the, the fictional storytelling in the in the podcast. Right, because if um if streaming allowed stories to be told, but movie film studios are not gonna do as features because suddenly you have a lower 
production bar to entry, even you know six episodes. But you can now, and you have a ton of streaming channels that all need content, as they call stories now. But but now, so podcasting would be even wider open. Again, the challenge would be aggregating an audience, but nonetheless, even stories that you can't, if, if you know, I'm getting told, I mean, now you have an even more open kind of medium to play with and tell stories in. And it's just storytellers to, to that degree haven't flocked there yet. I mean, it still seems under, it strikes me as being underutilized for storytelling. Well, let's talk about it from a production value standpoint for a second, right? Let's, right. you go all the way back to early radio. And these guys, I mean, they're geniuses, right? Because they're they're doing the this music and the sound effects and everything, doing mm-hmm. it live yes. on the fly. Yes, right. And and they're they're doing thunder and and rain and you know footsteps right. and gunshots and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and and even in the early '30s films, there there's a lot of the same techniques being used, right? Right. But think about the production value you can add today to right. a, a dramatization brought to podcast form that with with all the digital who's a what's it's that are available to us now to to really really make some chill inducing mm-hmm. freaking podcast audio productions i, I think it's i yeah, think it's, it, uh, the possibilities are endless there yeah no, it's, it's funny you said the sound effects. I just the difference between analog and digital. I mean, when again growing up in Berkeley, and I wound up going to school at Cal at UC Berkeley, and I was in the theater department. And at that time, Coppola, being the, you know, he and, and Lucas, of course, were the two obviously the two uh, hometown hometown uh, filmmaking heroes in those days. And Coppola was making Apocalypse Now, and some either students or it was like, and you knew people, or other theater actors you knew from the Bay Area. There was this one gig that people had. They you, they were hired to make because I was Walter. Mer- I guess Walter Murcher did the sound for Apocalypse Now. Was kind of like who helped both Coppola and I think and um, Lucas. So Murch was mixing Apocalypse Now, and he needed like boots. He needed the sound of soldiers jumping out of helicopters landing on the ground, thud thud thud, and boot. So they were hiring like and like actors would get these gigs, and there was some farm like in Sonoma or someplace I forget. Like they were jumping off like a pig trough, like or they were jumping down into the mud or wherever from. Like that was this gig you could get as a performer, put on the boots, and you could go poof, poof, and you could be like make boot sounds that Walter Murch would record so he could mix it into Apocalypse Now. Early Foley but, editing, apparently. Exactly. So it's still the analog. And that, to your point about now, digitally, no actors would no longer get those gigs because the gig wouldn't exist because you would just find that sound or mix it or create it digitally you know well you can you know know, when flash animation was the big thing right i was a huge proponent of flash before apple killed it and i I used to go to this website called flash kit and it still exists Mm -hmm. you get a flash Mm -hmm. kit and you can download all kinds of sound loops special effects sound effects you name it any audio file there was there were several different types. There was freeware, which which anybody could use with no license. There was some mm-hmm. called shareware that if you used it, you had to give credit, and some that mm-hmm. you 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 had to pay for. But there was plenty of free stuff on there, and you know the original uh, intro and outro music for this show came from Flash Kit. 
Oh, um, well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you you download it as MP3s and use it in your production or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really, really uh, good stuff, and, and it was intended for use in, in Flash productions. So, you know, just looking at that and all the different sound effects and special effects websites that exist, you know, one of my favorites going now this is really going to date me when it comes to internet history but going back to the late 90s there was a website called the daily wave and the oh, wow. uh, yeah it was all wave files but it was all pop culture oh, right right Remember, yeah right. wave files right and right. It, was, it was all pop culture it was it was sound bites from star trek it was mm. stuff from star wars it was from you know Something from the Maltese Falcon or, yeah. you know, or even from Psycho, right? The, you know, a boy's best friend is his mother, you know, uh-uh. uh, things of that. Right? Look at him. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, yeah. Right. It was, it was stuff like that. And it was, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and, and the guy who ran it would put one new clip up every day. And it would be ripped from some some movies, some television show, right. maybe even a radio production, maybe even, you know, the shadow knows. Yes. You know, maybe it was something like that. Um, and it just, you know, when you go back and you look at this this whole thing, where we're, we're headed with media, <laughs> go all the way back to the beginning. I'm a big proponent, Mark, of to know where you're going, you got to know where you've been. That's why right. I think what you're doing is really, really neat because not only are you going back to the beginning of, of media production, you're also going back to the beginning of folklore, at least when it comes to, you know, the Jewish religion, right? So Well, that's right. So the demon, the, the class of demon, one in particular, the, the, Lil- the Lilitu, if I'm pronouncing, they were uh, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern demons. And then Lilith, Lilith, which I, which I guess early Jewish, the early Hebrew storytellers, um, borrowed, or, you know, they were ambient from other tribes, and they were um, possibly also. I think it's where the origin of the the jinn, the genies, come from, like in right. Sirocco's and whirlwinds, because they were very destructive. So they were often ascribed to a demonic force. So these these Lilithu, which inhabited the desert. So Lilith, Lilith, um, who in in Jewish midrashic or midrash being kind of the the ex non canonical storytelling that exists in Judaism and later became just outright folklore by the Middle Ages, but in the biblical era, it was sort of the non-canonical stories. So Lilith is ascribed to be actually Adam's first wife before Eve. And right. she was um, too, uh, too bossy, according to the, the male rabbis. She, she, especially when it came to sex, I guess she wouldn't, she, uh, she, did, not, she did not agree with the, posi- the positions Adam wanted to put her in literally. And so she eventually left Eden. And um, and then Eve, who was allegedly going to be more compliant, was created, according to this story, which is why there was a Jewish feminist magazine called Lilith in the 70s. And actually, they still exist as a digital publication. I think they still have a domain name. So Lilith has always intrigued me as a figure. And I have her coming back as a, as a Nazi hunter in post-war America, who, who may or may not be incarnating in a uh, and a Hollywood actress um, of, okay. of that time. Who I've, See, who I've, I owe you a script to, read big time, and right. uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, um, you know, we talk about The Golem, but not that long ago, and I still haven't watched it, and I really, really want to see it. And it, it the buzz was great leading up to it, and kind of 
I don't, I don't know why. Maybe it wasn't well received. Um, the recent, this remake, this the, Israeli remake, right? The, the uh, Vigil. Updating. Oh, uh, no. The Golem. Oh, the Vigil. Yeah. The, the Golem remake was actually pretty good. I enjoyed that. But yeah, this okay. came out last February, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, called The Vigil. And I yes. really want to see that film. And it's the buzz seemed to die down almost as fast as the movie came out. So again, maybe it wasn't that well regarded, but um, I think. Well, the. I talked to those guys too. I don't know. I mean, I don't. Ahead of this, I sent you a link to that piece I did on the vigil. Yes. Which is part of the. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you get a chance. But yeah, I, I interviewed the cinematographer there for people listening. I, I do a cinematography column. I do, I'm do. i a one man Hollywood bureau for a British for British cinematographer, actually, which is likely the. Um, well, it's like the American cinematographer, except it's for all of Europe. You know, it kind of fills in for the rest of Europe as well. Um, and the EU. Um, so, so I do this dispatch from Hollywood and I get to talk to lots of very interesting creative folks in the, while I'm doing that. And so I, I talked to that, uh, the cinematographer of the vigil and how it came about. And it's, it, it was fascinating. Another one I saw screaming cause they sent me the link to prep for the interview and it does help. I mean, you know, there's a certain shorthand that if you grew up Jewish or Jewish enough, right. That you knew that, like what they're referring to. And there's this custom of sitting vigil for the body. The first mm-hmm. night, because the Jewish in the in Jewish tradition, you bury the body in three days. There's no messing around, and you wrap it. Traditionally, you wrap the body in a shroud and, and get get it into the ground fast. And which can be, if people have to come from all over the world, it can be kind of a logistical hassle sometimes getting to the actual burial. But uh, that that is sort of the the default in the in the in religious law. And and the first night, there's this vigil. There's this custom of a vigil to make sure no harm comes to the body. And being a horror film, of course, this this one young man is drafted, and you get paid. You can get paid to do the vigil if somebody from the family's not available. There's this custom you can pay somebody, and this young man is trying to get out of a Hasidic traditional community, and he reluctantly accepts this job to sit vigil over this body. And of course, um, as you might expect, being a horror film, things uh, things do get complex. They and, don't go as planned. Um, they do not go as planned, and it's not just an easy gig where he has to stay awake till dawn. So it's it's fun. It's it's worth a watch. Think, I thought it was things great go awry. Orphan. Yeah, exactly. And again, I don't want to over-promise. I'm not, I'm not going to claim it's like some secret masterpiece, but everybody, especially because these are all people at the outset of their careers, and you definitely, like, there's a kind of film like, well, I definitely want to watch what they're going to do next because this was engaging enough. And it was, as you say, it was different enough compared to the usual horror tropes that we get. That's why, you know, a film like Antlers was so disappointing, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I had high hopes for Antlers, and we talked about it the last time you were on the show. We talked about, you know, kind of what's next in horror. We talked a little bit about Jewish folklore. We talked about mm-hmm. Native American folklore. And Antlers, you know, really leans into the Wendigo, right? Which is one of those native american legends that that's starting to get more and more traction it's the basis of stephen king's pet cemetery um you know a film like the ritual um you know based on 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 the novel um and it, it, it was disappointing not because of the concept and not because of even the creature design, because of the performances. Carrie Russell was fine in it, but Jesse Plemons is a wet blanket in that mm. movie. And Jesse mm. Plemons has his his range has shrunk. 
And that's interesting. Right? Yeah. And I saw the power of the dog, hated it, don't understand why it got so much freaking award buzz and an award consideration because it's a slow burn to nowhere. And Jesse Plemons is now the guy who plays Jesse Plemons in the movie. And, you know, ever since I liked him in Breaking Bad, I liked him in Fargo, the TV series. And now, for whatever reason, He's a, he's just a wet blanket in everything that he does. And, you know, whether he's not Morgan Freeman for crying out loud, where, where Morgan Freeman can just show up and his voice carries the day. Right. I mean, that's right. He just has to enunciate and then, right. I mean, you know, (laughs) people would watch him read the phone book if they knew what a phone book was. But anyway, um, talking about post COVID and that kind of thing. We're seeing more and more live events. Uh, we're seeing more, uh, you know, theaters. Uh, obviously, the big thing was Broadway shutting down for two yeah. years, and and that's starting to come back. We're starting to see more and more live performances. I think this spring and summer and fall are going to be huge for things like music festivals. So, um, I think you know, as much as I, I hate to put it this way, because I I have such mixed feelings about it, but. I don't think it's over. I don't think we're at the point where we can just throw caution to the wind and go back to the way we were uh, prior to March of 2020. But at the same time, we're so COVID fatigued that we're like, fuck it. We're going to go out and we're going to do some stuff. Now, I'm not going to go lick a doorknob or anything stupid. But at the same time, we're still kind of avoiding people at the store. We're still, you know, um, you know, not as uh, touchy-feely as we were a couple years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, look, if you want to wear a mask while you're out and about, wear a mask, if that's what makes you feel comfortable. If you don't want to go out and mix and mingle with people, stay home, do your thing. Um, I still think this is a real thing. And it's, it's you know, it, you know, you'd mentioned Omicron. But there's, you know, again, this thing, considering what it did internationally, is not going anywhere and you know, it's just going to keep coming back in waves. Unfortunately, we're going to have to to learn to live with it. Like, like we did the the flu eventually. Um, but, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, you know, I'm not quite, I don't have all the boosters as I mentioned, but I still haven't gotten a damn thing yet. So I look at my, I count my lucky stars for that, but you know, hey, I wouldn't mind going to a show. I wouldn't mind, you know, we've been to a movie theater a few times. We've been out to eat, um, you know, things of that nature. We're starting to get back out in, in the world. Um, but uh, I, I do think, I hate to say it, but it's too soon. It's too soon, right? It's, it is. And, and the way everybody's acting, because now you even have the Democrats. You have a left wing who was bitching and moaning at Republicans and the right wing at the whole, oh, stop having events, stop having these parties. And, and all the, the Republicans were getting sick. Now the Democrats are getting sick. It's like, you know what? Just freaking stick to what you were saying and you'd be all right. But no, everybody wants to take the mask off. Everybody wants to go run around willy-nilly and hugging and kissing on each other. It's like, no, we're not there yet. Yeah, everyone that got sick of the gridiron dinner and now um, well, Kamala Harris, the vice president, she just had it, I guess, but apparently Mark, I don't know where she got her, I don't know where she was exposed, but yeah, I mean, everybody is getting it, and here here in LA, it's um, it's kind of, I've just been through awards season, but um, right, there was a, there was a fairly, fairly well adhered to uh, vaccine protocol, 
like with the Oscars, you could not even get in. It wasn't even like, you had to, they literally like you had to be vaccinated. We, it wasn't this like, you can sign a waiver or claim that you've had it. You know, if, you, if, you, if you want to cover the show. Now, the front of the house with the actors, you know, who can get away with hitting each other on TV, maybe did, but I know for the press room, um, you had to be vaccinated and you had to be tested not once, but twice in mm. 48 hours before the show. So, and you had to upload these test results. So I was, I was more routinely tested during the month of award season in LA than any time during the play. And happily, happily they all turned out to be negative. But, um, and even this, this event, uh, you mentioned I was at this screening room at a, at a private house that is known for hosting events. And it was a short film. We don't have to talk about that necessarily, but, um, was to show off this new collaborative technology, speaking of post-pandemic changes. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me, but to get into the event, you had to have you have to upload your VAX card, and you were supposed to have test results. And if you didn't have test results, they're going to test you on site. You didn't have Fred and I, but they just waved me in anyway with my VAX card. Like, okay, so I guess there were some gaps, but but you still had to upload a VAX card before it could show up. And then once we moved from the house, which is mostly in the patio, there were indoor spaces, and I was masked, and there weren't, there weren't a lot of people there, but it was one of those times where I'm, I'm, I was aware, like, hey, I'm indoors without a mask, but most people I don't know, um, which doesn't happen all that much. But then when you went into the screening room, um, everybody was required to put on a mask. So in the smaller, more enclosed space, we did have masks on. So that was kind of trying to like split the difference there. But so you see a lot of that where they're trying to, you know, people are trying to formulate kind of a, a best practice as we go along. Yeah. And, and, you know, schools are another thing, you know, my 15 year old is, you know, he's choosing to wear a mask uh, yeah. when he's in class, he has the option. Right. But here in Washington, the mask mandates are gone. So right. it, it's a choice at this point and, and that's what he chooses right. to do. And I respect his, his choice. And, you know, I'm at the point, and so is my wife that he, we were, we were at the point where if we were out shopping, we would cut our shopping experience short because we, we didn't like the mask wearing. And even yeah. when we, we started getting out to places that I like to go like a bookstore. Right. And I love right. a bookstore and it's like, get what you, what you came for and leave. It, it wasn't, there wasn't mm -hmm. so much as browsing experience. Right. Right. And, right. And, and same thing with groceries and everything else. It's like, I don't want to be here anymore. So now if I don't have to wear a mask, I'm less likely to, but I'm also still trying to social distance as much as I can and be like, okay, right. you stay right. over there. I'll be over here. And, and that kind of thing. So, you know, we have a small movie theater here in town in Ocean Shores that, that we've been to a few times. And, you know, it's, you know, before the mask mandates were dropped, it, you know, most people would wear the mask on the way in. But as soon as you got to your seats with your popcorn and your drink, that was the end of it. The mask came off and, you know, but again, here yep. I am two years later, I've got whatever shots I can get except for this latest booster, this brand new one. And mm -hmm. I still haven't gotten it yet. So, again, I count my lucky stars. Um, I'm still yeah. going to continue to be careful and that kind of thing and, and pick and choose my events carefully and wisely. And, you know, eventually I'll go to a sporting event. Eventually I'll go to a music event. Um, but I'm in no rush, if that makes sense. Yeah, man, I think, and we, and we, I know we're not here to talk about sports or the 
to, to suddenly add another half hour of sports chat, which we could do. But apparently the San Francisco Giants, I just found out many of the Giants are coming down with COVID as we speak. And I guess they're going to have to go to their triple a club to get a roster to play the next few games so they're off covid protocol well baseball's been a problem from the beginning with this i mean more so than Mm -hmm. the other sports and then you get yeah we could talk in a whole another half an hour we can talk about the whole Kyrie irving thing with the brooklyn nets and and how he had the nerve to come out to say oh yeah we didn't have enough time to gel as a team oh that's why you got swept by my celtics okay um, mm-hmm. no, it's because your dumbass chose not to be vaccinated. And he even said, well, you know, during that right. time, during that time when, where I couldn't play, no, where you chose not to play. That's right. That's right. right. So we get, we can get into that, that whole thing. I mean, the NFL has had its issues with, with this whole thing. Uh, you know, NHL, you know, especially with teams based in Canada, going back and forth to the States have had their own issues. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, when it comes to sports, it's a whole different thing. And we can can go on and on and on and on. And, you know, it's a whole different, we can do a whole show on that. Um, A whole different podcast. That's right. (laughs) Totally different podcast with its own dramatic elements. Uh, but you know, Mark, I really appreciate you, uh, coming on the show for a third time to, uh, talk about it. It's always great. I mean, I love, you know. As I say, I you know put me in that that Paul Simon Steve Martin club uh, of, of recurring you know, well you're the host so that, so it's a little bit different but as as you know re- recurring roster member here, um, just always you know always glad to do it so always happy to get the call or the text you know very much appreciated and you know I miss our uh, I miss our uh, uh, fish and suds at uh, Slancha oh, yeah. and uh, Jack yeah. London Square in Oakland it's been far too long since we've uh, raised a pint of Guinness together. And, uh, yeah. and and broken fish, as it were. That's right. It's been way too long. And, uh, you know, I've got some stories about that spot. Uh, well, we always knew we were in the right spot as as the master, Oscar Wilde, lorded over us. That's that, right. That giant portrait of uh, Oscar Wilde, author mm-hmm. of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray and a lot of other things, but yeah. also a very, very progressive influence on, on literature in a time when, when being progressive was frowned upon. Exactly. Well, his... His immortal description of fox hunting in Britain, right? The the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible. I've always loved that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I'll never forget the first time you and I met up there, and, and there was there was Oscar lording mm-hmm. over us, as it were. But mm-hmm. uh, and you know, never mind. It, the picture of Dorian Gray is a vampire story, and I'll go to my grave with that one. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> But no, Mark, it's been a been a pleasure uh, as always, and uh, you know, keep keep working on your thing, and I'll I'll uh, definitely give the the scripts a read that you've sent me. I owe you that, Great. and uh, it's bugging me that I haven't done it yet, but I will. And uh, you keep working on it, and hopefully, uh, maybe maybe I can have a small part. Um, there we go. Do a little, <laughs> little be a voice extra for you on on that program. Yeah. Uh, But, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get the Knack podcast. For my special guest, my good friend, acclaimed author, journalist, and God knows what else he is, Mark London Williams. We'll talk to you next week.